Russia's tanks rolled into Ukraine, Vladimir Putin made a threat not heard since the height of the Cold War. Russia's response will be immediate and will lead you to such consequences never experienced in your history. President Putin has ordered Russia's strategic nuclear forces to be placed on high alert. And Russia at war once again is bringing back Cold War concerns about the threat of its nuclear arsenal. Russia's foreign minister recently called the risk of nuclear war considerable. The Kremlin's foreign minister accused the West of waging a proxy war with Russia by arming Ukraine. And he warned such support poses considerable risk of nuclear conflict. Yes, nuclear. With Russia's invasion of Ukraine in February of 2022, many Americans have once again been confronted with the prospect of nuclear crisis. Complex ideas like deterrence, security assurances, alliances, conventional deterrence, military aid, and sanctions have all been such common themes in our media that it is possible to find just as many people who oppose one set of foreign policies as those that support them. But of all the foreign policy discussions that have been brewing in this country since February, the one that I think is still the least understood is this concept of tactical nuclear weapons. This is Nukes of Hazard, a podcast from the Center for Arms Control and Nonproliferation. I'm Jeff Wilson, a policy analyst at the Center, and your host. Without a doubt, the phrase tactical nuclear weapons, or variations like low-yield nuclear weapons, non-strategic nuclear weapons, and battlefield nuclear weapons, have all entered our mainstream political discourse in a way that hasn't been seen since the end of the Cold War. But what is a low-yield or tactical or non-strategic nuclear weapon? Some people seem to think that they're no big deal, that the United States should not be deterred from confronting Putin more strongly because, well, we could absorb a small nuclear strike. Others say that they are just as deadly as the bombs that leveled Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and that even suggesting their use is a step down a slippery slope towards full-on nuclear war. But just what are they? And how should we respond to calls for the United States to build more of them? To answer these questions, I spoke with Dr. Jane Vainman. Hi, I'm Jane Vainman. I'm an assistant professor of political science at Temple University, and I'm currently the Lightning Scholar at Perry World House at the University of Pennsylvania. Outstanding. Thank you so much, Jane. We really appreciate you joining us today. And at such a critical time, I think that Americans, especially young Americans that haven't had to deal with nuclear weapons before really are sort of in this moment where nuclear weapons and quote tactical nuclear weapons are now being talked about, you know, in every news cycle, every day with the crisis in Ukraine. I'm so happy that we could have you on. We really, really appreciate it. I think the first thing that I want to ask is we see so many terms getting thrown around right now. I've been working on nuclear weapons for the past nine years, and I still find it difficult to figure out what to call these weapons. What exactly are we talking about when people are talking about these tactical nuclear weapons? Yeah, this is an excellent question about sort of what do we mean by tactical or non-strategic or battlefield? And the reality is that people really disagree about what they mean. There isn't one definition. People disagree about sort of what 
strategic or not strategic. And some people, I think, quite convincingly argue that there is no such thing as a non-strategic nuclear weapon because any kind of nuclear use will have strategic consequences. Um, the distinction sort of has mattered somewhat when we think about it a little bit more in the context of U.S., Soviet, and U.S., Russian arms control, because there we have uh, limited strategic systems, um, ICBMs, bombers, submarines. So it has a sort of a more concrete meaning in that sense, um, but less about like the size of the warhead or specifically where it would be used. So I think it might sometimes... Um, useful to not get really bogged down in the exact definition of what a tactical or non-strategic weapon is, and maybe think about it as sort of what are the kinds of scenarios where a weapon like this would be used? Like, what are people mostly talking about when they tend to use these terms? And I think what people are generally imagining when they're trying to engage with this debate is that it is a generally smaller yield weapon, but smaller yield compared to the other nuclear weapons we have in the arsenal. So smaller could be like the size of the weapons used against Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So small is still very big. And maybe it's a weapon that is used in a regional conflict, for example, against a target on the battlefield, such as against opposing troops, or maybe other kinds of enemy installations. That's kind of what people have in mind when they are talking about uh, tactical or non-strategic capabilities. Outstanding. Yeah. So I, I know that, for instance, some of the, the non-strategic weapons that the United States bases for NATO countries, you know, they, they can go upwards of 150 kilotons, right? I mean, much, much, much larger than the size of the weapons that we use on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And I think that this is an interesting point that you make. I think that most Americans, when we think about nuclear weapons, we have this idea of nuclear deterrence, right? Whatever that might be, the sort of the strategic weapons that you're talking about, the big bombers and the ICBMs and the subs, they sort of enshrine this ideal of nuclear deterrence. But these tactical weapons are somewhere below that threshold, right? And, and I think that that's something interesting that I want to get in on here is that purpose. Not think of tactical meaning small, but tactical meaning a discrete battlefield role, right? They have some sort of tactical objective. Can, can you tell us a little bit more about that, especially in the U.S. Or, or Russian context right now? U.S. forces, they base these on conventional air bases, right? They're And some of the new weapons that we're talking about might go back on conventional ships. Are these weapons that are supposed to augment conventional forces? Sure. So I think the way we kind of think about big deterrence, right, strategic level deterrence is that U.S. nuclear capabilities prevent Russia from launching missiles, nuclear weapons against the U.S. because we will strike them back, right? And that kind of, I think, makes a lot of intuitive sense to even people kind of starting out thinking about deterrence. But when you think about uh, non-strategic or tactical nuclear weapons, their goal would be to, for example, deter, prevent a conflict that's already going, for example, a regional conflict, a territorial conflict, for example, an invasion perhaps into another country, uh, escalating to the next level, right? The country, you know, seeking to take even more territory, another state becoming more involved in the conflict when they weren't before, these kinds of escalation steps. So the idea, again, it's sort of in theory, is that the threat to use a battlefield nuclear weapon would prevent this kind of escalation. 
Now I haven't sort of like used like whose theory this is here yet because it's a little bit mixed, right? During the Cold War, NATO was conventionally inferior to the Soviet Union. So in the face of that conventional inferiority, the logic of NATO was more heavily dependent on non-strategic nuclear weapons to respond to what they saw as a potentially overwhelming uh, Soviet conventional attack. Like the idea was that NATO would have to use nuclear weapons first in order to stop a Soviet attack, and that would deter the attack from ever starting. Fast forward to now, in some ways, the tables have been reversed, and now Russia sees itself as conventionally inferior and has relied on nuclear weapons as a bigger part of its military doctrine. And this has been true for quite a long time. This is not a recent development. Uh, We've seen that sort of Russia incorporates nuclear use earlier in the stages of conflict in terms of how their doctrines are developed. Again, for purposes, as I mentioned, of uh, preventing escalation or scaring other countries enough to not help their aligned or allied countries, that kind of use. So in this case, the sort of big deterrence logic of preventing an attack on New York or Washington, D.C. doesn't really apply because we're talking about nuclear use at a different scale in a different conflict scenario. I think that you hit on something interesting here too, which is that this is all theoretical, right? We've made lots of suppositions and assumptions about how and why nuclear weapons would be used at this scale, but also a lot about how our opponents would respond. One of our old colleagues, Will Satron, and I wrote a piece uh, once upon a time that was saying, you know, it's presupposing a lot to say that if the Russians, you know, it's perceived that the Russians have this escalate to de-escalate scenario for using low-yield nuclear weapons themselves. It's it's presupposing a lot to think that, wow, the Russians blow up a small nuclear weapon over the 1st Marine Division or something, and that causes Americans to go, whoa, I guess the Russians mean business, right? But with thousands of Americans or civilians, you know, suffering from radiation exposure or dying on the battlefield, it's hard to imagine that that is a useful way to control escalation, right? Right. Yeah. The whole like, right. I mean, first of all, the the fact that you mentioned, right, that this is all theory. There's no real evidence here. Nobody has ever fought a limited nuclear war. So it baffles me sometimes how people talk about these logics and sort of these scenarios as if we really know that much about them. We do not. Uh, And the confidence, I think, that some people voice in how things will unfold is not based on any empirical realities. And I think we should remember that when we think about some of these scenarios and ideas. And second, this idea that we can expect and we somehow understand what will happen as the next step or the result uh, of our nuclear use is also highly questionable. Even in the case of a smaller or tactical battlefield nuclear use, um, I think you're exactly right in thinking that this belief that somehow nuclear use would scare the other side enough to get them to back down could be really quite flawed. And when we think about it specifically kind of in the little bit in the Ukraine context, which a lot of people are talking about right now, does it scare anyone or actually, you know, bring opposition together to say like, no, we have to respond to something like this. Um, So you could see a scenario where a limited nuclear use makes escalation very likely, an escalation that 
we can have all kinds of theory about how we can control, or the Russians can have all kinds of theory about how they can control limited escalation. And my understanding is that they have a lot more theory about that than we do. They, they've sort of um, been much more uh, serious about developing theory about nuclear escalation um, in the use of the weapons that they have. But I don't know if they're right. I don't know if their understandings of our relation, our reactions are right. Um, and all these kinds of things, I think, significantly increase the risk um, of escalation to much more serious and much bigger nuclear use. Right. And we have some Cold War analysis of that as well. I, I know that there was a series of war games. I think it was Proud Prophet that was played in the Reagan administration, which you know supposedly led Reagan to make the statement with Gorbachev, you know, a nuclear war cannot be won and must never be fought. And we actually just saw nuclear powers, including the Russians and the Chinese and the Americans, actually reaffirm that statement just January, right? But now we are seeing, you know, statements are great, statements are nice, but but now we're seeing nuclear threats again, the threat of these sort of weapons. We've seen a lot of recent threats from the Russians over potentially using or, you know, implying that they might use a nuclear weapon in Ukraine to deter NATO or, you know, if things continue to get bad for them there, I think is what is sort of assumed. And I've seen a lot of commentators talk about that it would be a Russian low yield or non-strategic weapon that would be used there. Can you explain sort of what is this scenario that people are talking about? Yeah, so the Russians have indeed been talking a lot about nuclear weapons. There's been um, quite a bit of veiled and not so veiled threats directly from Putin about look at all the big nuclear weapons that we have, which is, um, to be honest, pretty unnerving, right? Because even if you if you were following, I think, Russian nuclear strategy, Russia does have uh, nuclear use as part of different strategic plans that they develop. But even sort of knowing that, my feeling was like, oh, that's gonna, this is kind of a little early or sort of just very sudden to be all of a sudden signaling right off the bat with nuclear threats. So that raises some questions. And I think sort of the scenario that people are concerned about, what they're afraid of unfolding of what would happen, roughly aligns with what people have called a Russian escalate to de-escalate strategy. So the idea is that Russia would use a, a non-strategic nuclear weapon somewhere in order to basically stop the conflict, get the other side to back down, and secure and solidify the gains that they have made up to that point. So, you know, force de-escalation essentially and like walk away with their win. And before this conflict, the way that people thought about it, they kind of, there was a lot of, um, there was war gaming about this done about thinking about whether, you know, in the scenario that Russia is invading the Baltic states, um, there was a famous Rand War game that played this out. But there's also debate about whether this escalate to de-escalate strategy is even real. Some of the people and scholars, scholars who looked at Russian documents, I think more closely, were quite skeptical that this was actually how the Russians ever envision using nuclear weapons. While they do envision nuclear, using nuclear weapons first, they found little indication that they would do so in a con in like a regional conflict like that, where they were had sort of taken territory or something like that, and that really Russia was conceptualizing nuclear use and first nuclear use much more in the context of uh, protecting the vital and existential interests of Russia itself. And my view is that I mean I was more convinced by those arguments, right? I found it pretty compelling that 
it doesn't seem like Russia really has this escalate to de-escalate strategy and that escalate to de-escalate seems like a, a bit of a fear-mongering uh, kind of term and scenario. Okay, but then sort of how does this play now in the current Ukraine crisis? It's almost like like a test of this, right? Like who is right if they do or do not have escalate to de-escalate? How realistic is this fear that Russia will use a nuclear weapon on a Ukrainian target? And I don't know. I mean, I'm still sort of, I guess I am much more concerned than I was before. I am much more concerned that I am wrong in my thinking that escalate to de-escalate is not a thing. But at the same time, I wouldn't just like throw out all our prior assessments about how Russians think about nuclear use. I don't think it's a low bar for them either. I think it's a serious consideration. I think there could be a scenario where maybe Putin redefines existential interest of the state to somehow include activities in Ukraine. But that that's a, that's a stretch and that's a serious move. And I think he would see it as a serious move. We've kind of danced around it here a little bit. So I just want to go back to it. We've been talking a lot about the supposed reason for using a non-strategic nuclear weapon is to control escalation, right? That somehow by using a nuke, you can stop the use of larger ones further up the ladder. I'm curious about, you know, just as many people, I think, have talked about this idea that actually what you're actually doing is lowering the threshold for nuclear use, right? That if you can imagine weapons that aren't for deterrence, you know, and and that that whole concept of deterrence, I know, is sort of fuzzy, too. But if you can imagine weapons that would be used against conventional forces or in a conventional sort of conflict setting, that you're actually lowering the threshold by which we intend to use nuclear weapons and that that itself is sort of a slippery slope. Could you explain that a little bit for us, Jane? Yeah. So like, think about it, like the logic like this, like, let's say your goal is to deter uh, the expansion of a regional conflict, right? Like you're in a regional conflict and you don't want other countries to become involved. You don't want them to bring more of their capabilities to bear. So the idea is, right, like you want to deter them from doing that. So you threaten limited nuclear use. The, the idea then is that you have to be able to do it in order for that threat to be credible. So in order to make these kinds of threats real and to actually have any deterrence value at that lower level, not at the strategic level, you have to have usable weapons. It has to be real. So the creation and existence of these weapons and the policies to put them into action make that deterrence threat more credible. So it should be good for deterrence, right? Okay. On the other hand, though, having these weapons and having the means to use them makes them more usable. Like the things that's good for deterrence also makes use more likely, right? So if in the event that deterrence fails, you threaten to use them, your threat was credible, but it didn't work. Threat was not perceived, was not seen as credible enough. All kinds of things can happen that, you know, might explain deterrence failure. At that point, then you have a nuclear weapon that is now a lot more usable in the case of deterrence failure than before. So the overall likelihood of nuclear use could potentially actually go up because of these more usable nuclear weapons and a lower level at which you have already thought through and developed a plan uh, to use them. So I think there's like, I think people really struggle and theorists sort of really struggle with this duality of making limited nuclear use threats credible and limited nuclear deterrence credible 
and the danger associated, the risks associated with more usable nuclear weapons. And I think that's sort of some of the arguments that we see, right, is that the people argue that in order to make the U.S. position or U.S. ability, let's say, to deter further Russian aggression more credible, we need to have more options at multiple different levels, right? And by having more options, by having capabilities which are proportional to whatever Russia is threatening, in being proportional, it makes it more likely that we are actually going to be able to use them, that they'll perceive that we are actually going to do it. And therefore, it'll be credible and they'll be deterred. But the problem of having all those options is that it also makes it more possible that we can actually then cross the nuclear threshold, somehow perceiving that this is a smaller, less serious nuclear weapon. When I think in reality, we underestimate in sort of using this like deterrence and back and forth language, like how serious that crossing of a threshold would still be, even for a smaller nuclear weapon. So let's tie that together, right? This is really, I think, the key of all of this is that by having more options or, or more nuclear weapons, more non-strategic nuclear weapons, where you can threaten nuclear use more often, if somebody calls your bluff at a certain point, you either wreck the deterrent value of that threat, or you have to ante up and use a nuclear weapon, I guess, hypothetically. That's the risk. But then we get ourselves into this use logic. And I think that this is where some of the, what I find to be really bad hot takes in Ukraine coming from. And I've seen multiple commentators out there, especially out in the Twitterverse, have been saying, you know, we, we shouldn't be that worried about Russian tactical nuclear weapons. We could absorb a small nuclear weapon. And it wouldn't really, you know, it's like that Dr. Strangelove thing, right? Like, I'm not saying we wouldn't get our hair must, but we could do that. We could absorb that. And I think because it's been so long, luckily, since the last nuclear weapon has been used, that people have lost countenance of what exactly it is we're talking about here. That even these small nuclear weapons are 10 times the size of the ones that were used in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. That that seems like a particularly dangerous world to be living in. Yeah, and I think, I mean, this is like, I mean, this is a very long story, right? There has always been people who seriously believe that fighting and winning a nuclear war, a limited nuclear war is possible. And during a lot of the Cold War, it seemed that leaders of the Soviet Union believed that fighting and winning a nuclear war was possible. And that's why they developed a lot of capabilities to actually do that. And I I think it takes a almost sort of a political or conceptual decision to sort of think through that whether you believe that or not. And whether the kinds of costs that would be involved in fighting a nuclear war is something that you fully understand. Um, I think to some extent, it's right, right? Yes, there are smaller nuclear weapons. When I teach my nuclear weapons class, I uh, explain to students, right, that there are some nuclear warheads that would level all of Philadelphia, but there's some that would just focus on Temple University. So, we, you know, it, it's not like a one and done kind of scenario in a lot of ways. So that part is in some ways right, right? I, the use of a one nuclear weapon does not necessarily end the world, but it significantly increases the risks of other closer to world ending events. We were talking before about, right, like whether, like which sort of escalation story do you think is right? Like, do you think 
using a nuclear weapon gets everyone to back down? Or do you think using nuclear weapon results in escalation and further and further and further and becomes very difficult to control, right? There's two versions of that story. And people argue back and forth about like, which is right? Sure. Okay. I think there's another way to think about it, which is that like, if both are possible, and you think there's a least some risk of the uncontrolled escalation version being true, and maybe you even have indicators that it could be more true today than at other times, given the capabilities, given the leaders involved, right? Do you really want to roll that dice, right? Cross the nuclear threshold in hopes that escalation can be controlled when you know there's a chance that it can't. So yes, I don't know for sure whether escalation can be controlled in the ways that the proponents of limited nuclear war have argued or is necessarily uncontrollable, uh, like others have argued. But given those possibilities, I think those risks are too high and very high for crossing any nuclear threshold. And that leads me perfectly into my last question here. We have this dichotomy that I think a lot of us see every day working with Congress and, and dealing with the politics of nuclear weapons, that here in the United States, we, at the same time, we're capable of saying that we believe that a nuclear war cannot be won and must never be fought like we did just in January. And then at the same time, conservatives on the Hill are already calling for a new generation of nuclear weapons and increased nuclear spending specifically in reference to Ukraine. And like we've already talked about, this seems like a very dangerous proposition, you know, to sort of think that, well, maybe we can have it both ways. I'm, I'm curious, where do we go from here? What do you think can be done to reduce the dangers posed by these sorts of scenarios? You point out this dichotomy, right? never fighting a nuclear war, yet building lots of nuclear weapons. And I think the way, like one way that logic can be squared is the argument that we need all these capabilities and these high numbers and et cetera, in order to guarantee that a nuclear war will never be fought because the other side is deterred. I worry about the strength of deterrence in lower level uh, scenarios. I worry about how deterrence actually hands out when some element uh, of deterrence failure has already happened, when a crisis is already in progress? How do we deter not sort of like the big war starting, but within crisis escalation? Um, I'm, I'm not sure having more nuclear weapons and more nuclear capabilities actually accomplishes the goal of a nuclear war never being fought. But I think that's the logic that sort of maybe people, people make. We could talk theory all day, but policymakers have to come up with actual strategies and plans, and lawmakers have to think about where to allocate money for what programs and what to build. So decisions have to be made. I think that we need to sort of really assess what's like the nature of the problem and what's the threat that is on the table, right? What are we trying to deter? What are we trying to prevent, right? Are we trying to deter Russian further Russian aggression against a NATO country, against an ally, maybe an ally in nuclear use against an ally in Asia as well? Are we trying to deter aggression against uh, powerful countries by against other weaker countries, but not necessarily our allies? And understanding the, the types of threats involved, um, I think it should be an important first step in thinking about what kinds of capabilities the U.S. needs to be thinking about. Because I think one of the lessons that this conflict in Ukraine has demonstrated 
is that alliance credibility and alliances matter and that NATO is highly unified and I think looks more credible today uh, than it did before. Can we ever credibly promise to protect a non-allied country? Well, this has shown that that is very difficult, regardless of what capabilities you have, right? Like no amount of tactical nuclear weapons, imagine if the U.S. had them now, would have somehow deterred what we're seeing now because we're not using any of our conventional capabilities directly anyway. Uh, So it's not like we would have done that with nuclear either. So there's kind of a mismatch there uh, between the capabilities and the like intentions and the promises um, of what the U.S. is willing to do. So I think in evaluating different things that the U.S. could pursue, both in terms of specific capabilities and policies, we kind of need to think about what they actually might accomplish or not accomplish and the ways that sometimes like having matched capabilities or having exactly what the other side has doesn't actually stop the other side from using theirs or threatening theirs if we are not able to credibly threaten to use ours, right? Like a lot of these things that I think people are talking about, should the U.S. have more of its own tactical nuclear weapons? Should the U.S. have higher numbers of strategic weapons? Does any of that actually change the calculus of what adversaries might do? I think sometimes the answer is no, not really, not for the kinds of threats that they're actually making, because they're not making the kinds of threats that activate any of those capabilities. I think one of the things that you said that really resonates with me is, and we've seen several people, including United States senators recently say, why did deterrence fail in Ukraine? Which I think is a really sort of spurious question. And I think that you hit the nail on the head there, right? They weren't an ally. They're not under the U.S. nuclear umbrella. So that's that's a strange thing to say. And all of the proposals in front of Congress right now about building new non-strategic nuclear weapons, like you said, would do very little to actually have changed what happened there. Is, is that correct? Yeah. So, I mean, like deterrent, like nuclear deterrence against a country where we do have a nuclear commitment, like a nuclear umbrella, has not failed. And I'm at least not that worried about uh, Putin suddenly intentionally just going straight and using a nuclear weapon against a NATO country. I think deterrence is holding strong in that case. Well, Jane, I really appreciate you talking to us today. I think this was enormously helpful. Thank you so much. Sure. Yeah, I'm happy to be here and always happy to discuss these issues. I hope this discussion was helpful. As the world continues to become increasingly multipolar, and as the U.S. fights to restore its alliances and some semblance of norms and values to global peace and security relations, some are already calling for more nuclear weapons, and more usable nuclear weapons, when our deterrent is more than adequate, and according to leading experts, like the one we just heard from, working. The United States already maintains the most powerful nuclear arsenal in the world, not to mention the most capable conventional forces in the world, and like Jane said, having more of these weapons would likely have done little to actually deter the Russians from invading Ukraine, as Ukraine was not a U.S. ally in the first place. Instead of rushing to create a new generation of easier-to-use nuclear weapons that would have little strategic role in deterring another Ukraine, let's instead use that money to double down on the tools that are proving inordinately effective right now, like diplomacy, economic pressure, and our own allies. I hope that if we learned one thing from the Cold War, it's that more nukes did not make us any safer. 
So let's go ahead and put the more usable ones back in our rear view mirror. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a product of the Center for Arms Control and Nonproliferation. It is produced by Rowan Humphreys. As always, if you have any questions or comments, please feel free to email podcast at armscontrolcenter.org. Also, don't forget to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Nukes of Hazard. That's at Nukes underscore of underscore hazard. And on Facebook at facebook.com backslash armscontrolcenter. Thank you so much. We'll see you next time.